Good morning, Grace. Uh, my name is Rob Price. My wife, Mindy, and I are members here at Grace. Uh, I'm delighted to be with you uh, this morning. Hallelujah, he reigns. Uh, would you please turn with me to Psalm 2? Uh, when the elders were planning out this summer's preaching, uh, they let us pick which psalm we get to preach on. <laughs> psalm 2 is one of my favorites. Um, if the New Testament has favorites, uh, it's one of the New Testament's favorite psalms too. Um, it's quoted or alluded to some 20 times in the New Testament. Psalm 2 is even in Handel's Messiah. I mean, what more could you want? <laughs> um, let me read Psalm 2 for us, and then we'll pray. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we praise you because in Jesus you have given us refuge from wrath. We thank you that Jesus is our king, And we ask now that by your spirit you would open to us the riches of this psalm as it speaks of your son, in whose name we pray, amen. Psalm 2 is king versus kings, the king of Zion versus the kings of the earth. Psalm 2 is about kingship, particularly about the relationship between King Jesus and the kings of the earth. In other words, Psalm 2 is about politics. (laughs) Uh, I teach at Biola, and when I first started teaching there, I was assigned this one class, and when you're assigned a new class, what you do is you read the course description, right? What's this class supposed to be about? What topics is it supposed to cover? And this class class had all kinds of interesting things in it. It had creation and providence. It had uh, humans in the image of God. It had the angels and the fall and all kinds of other things. But then this little course description said, politics. I had to cover politics. I thought, politics? Like, this is a theology class. And I'm a theology guy. I don't know anything about politics. And I'm not sure I care to learn. (laughs) I flipped through some of my theology books, nonetheless, just to see, but nope, none of them said anything about politics. Okay, so I needed help. 
So I called my friend the herd of Gemsbach. Adventure Week. My friend Andy Draycott. Andy knows about politics. I said, Andy, is this I'm supposed to talk about politics? Like, who talks about politics? Where does it talk about? Where am I supposed to go for politics? Andy, Andy. He says, Rob, it's okay. You'll be fine. And he pointed me to some books uh, that would help, particularly to Augustine's massive and massively awesome The City of God. Okay, here's the story. In the year 410, the eternal city of Rome, it had been invincible for a thousand years at that point. It was sacked by barbarians. And the Western Roman Empire lurched a step closer to total collapse. It had been almost a century since Constantine had begun favoring Christianity in the empire. And a lot of pagans in Augustine's day were saying, you know, Rome was great until it went Christian, right? Pagans were blaming Christianity for ruining the Roman Empire. Like, how can we keep conquering nations when you Christians are all concerned about just war? How can we maintain civil order when you Christians are always appealing for mercy? How can we advance our culture when you waste so much time and effort and not a little talent on myths and the worthless of society? And so Augustine wrote, City of God. In it, he defends Christianity against the charge of being, in those ways, politically subversive. And he explains the relationship between Christianity and empire, between King Jesus and the kings or emperors of the earth. One of the things that's so amazing about City of God is that in order to answer the critics of his day, Augustine tells the whole story of humanity from before creation until the life everlasting. And that's because Augustine recognized the political tensions of his day were just another typical episode in a much larger drama. It's a drama between what he describes as two cities, the city of God and the city of man. So according to Augustine, a Christian view of politics depends in part on recognizing every human society as a mixture of the citizens of these two cities. So this is not church and state. There are Christians in the halls of power and there are unbelievers in the pews. What it means, though, is that every human government finds itself in the awkward position of having to rule over the subjects of another king. Now, Augustine's not just making up this two-city stuff, right? It's, it's from the Bible. Galatians 4, for example, right? Paul tells his allegory of Sarah and Hagar. Sarah, he says, represents the heavenly Jerusalem to which believers belong. Hagar represents the earthly Jerusalem to which unbelievers belong, two cities. Hebrews 12, it's coming to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And we see the two cities again in the final scenes in the book of Revelation. From fallen is Babylon the great to the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So Augustine helped me to see, thank you, heard of Gemsbach, (laughs) Augustine helped me to see that according to the Bible, human history is a tale of two cities. Not London and Paris. (laughs) Lord have mercy, not Washington and Beijing. Right? It's Jerusalem and Babylon. Gondor and Barad-dur. 
Or as Alan Gomes has been teaching us, it's heaven and hell. And of course, we find these two cities also in Psalm 2. And even more than a tale of two cities or two kingdoms, in Psalm 2, we find that human history is a tale of the one true king. So this morning, I want to talk about these two cities, king versus kings, politics. First, though, let me talk about what I'm not going to talk about. (laughs) I'm not going to talk about verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. You see, in the New Testament, this one verse is applied to the baptism of Jesus and to the transfiguration of Jesus and to the resurrection of Jesus and to the whole earthly ministry of Jesus, this one verse. And in Hebrews 1, it's connected with Jesus being the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Verse 7 has figured prominently, and rightly so, in Christian reflection on the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is expressed in the Nicene Creed. The Son of God is begotten of the Father before all worlds. But I'm not going to talk about that. (laughs) If we do Psalms next summer, maybe I'll pick Psalm 2 again and try to preach a sermon on the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. Next summer. What I am going to talk about today is politics. Okay, so first, we're going to look at how Psalm 2 introduces us to the whole book of Psalms. Then second, we're going to walk through the Psalm through its major sections, beginning with the rebellion of the kings, verses 1 through 3. Then there's the plan of the Lord, verses 4 through 9. Finally, there's God's vision for politics, verses 10 through 12. And then, of course, we'll close our time together by celebrating the Lord's Supper. Uh, So uh, last month, early June, Randy preached for us on Psalm 1. And he explained that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together are the gateway to the Psalter. These first two psalms open the entire book of psalms for us by setting out two of the book's most important themes, the love of the law and the reign of the Lord. So Psalm 1 addresses the problem of the man of God confronting wickedness in the surrounding society. It's an individual problem, a problem of ethics, the righteous individual surrounded by wicked individuals. And the solution to this problem in Psalm 1 is the Bible. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Psalm 2, on the other hand, is corporate, right? It addresses the problem of the people of God confronting wickedness in the surrounding nations. It's a national problem, a political problem. The righteous nation surrounded by wicked nations. And the solution to this problem is the king. So these two themes, the Psalm 1 delight in the law and the Psalm 2 reign of the Lord's anointed, these are shot through the rest of the Psalter. So whoever it was that compiled the book of Psalms selected these two Psalms and put them up front as the introduction to the whole collection. Now Psalm 1, right, it's about this righteous guy who loves the Bible. But as Randy explained, Psalm 1 doesn't really find its resolution until we see that this righteous man is ultimately Jesus. Only in Jesus' sure and perfect delight in the law of the Lord can our wavering delight be pleasing to God. 
Psalm 2, on the other hand, is much more obviously and directly about Jesus, right? It's the Son of God ruling from Zion over all the nations of the earth and putting a smackdown on anyone who gets sassy. (laughs) Psalm 2 is actually prophetic commentary on God's covenant with David. And the contrast, I think, between the covenant and the psalm makes it obvious just how prophetic Psalm 2 is. 2 Samuel 7, God had said to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Now, that's pretty remarkable stuff, right? The house or line of David established forever. But note, it doesn't say anything there in the covenant about his ruling all the nations of the earth. Right? That's from elsewhere in the Old Testament, like, for example, Daniel 7 that we read earlier. But the psalm here, it draws in those themes too to talk about the Lord's anointed. So even before we get to the New Testament, right, this psalm is already just bursting with prophetic anticipation. God's anointed, his Messiah, God's king, God's son. Like this is all the same person and he's ruling in power to the ends of the earth and forever, right? This is way bigger than David or Solomon. But so is the rebellion of the kings of the earth. You see, the the kings that Psalm 2 is talking about are not just from the handful of nations surrounding Israel, but literally all nations to the ends of the earth. And just as the rule of the Lord's anointed king lasts forever, so the rebellion of these kings is not just during David's day or Solomon's day, but throughout history. So in Psalm 2, this rebellion, it transcends any geographic location or historical occasion. In fact, just like Augustine's City of God, Psalm 2 also is this amazing interpretation of the whole of human history, all the way to the second coming of Christ, as we'll see. You wonder where Augustine got his ideas. Okay, so the three major sections of Psalm 2, they show us three universal elements of politics in a fallen world, beginning with the rebellion of kings, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, you'll be happy to know that there is such a thing as a good king as we'll see at the end of the psalm. But here's the thing. Most kings aren't. Most kings of the earth feel unfairly restricted by God. God wants justice and peace, upholding the rights of the oppressed, caring for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. But earthly rulers feel that these demands are bonds and cords, or your translations may read chains and fetters and shackles. The rulers of this earth feel like God has put them in prison with his demands, and they want to break out. A couple weeks ago was America's 241st birthday. 
Back in 1826, they were getting ready to celebrate America's 50th anniversary, right? Declaration of Independence, 1776, 50th anniversary. And some folks got together. They wrote to an aging Thomas Jefferson to invite him to one of their parties. Now, he was too weak to attend. In fact, he actually died that July 4th. But in reply, Jefferson expressed his wish that America might be to the world the signal of arousing men to burst the chains under which monkish ignorance and superstition had persuaded them to bind themselves and to assume the blessings and security of self-government, the free right to the unbounded exercise of reason and freedom of opinion. (laughs) Now, Jefferson was in many ways a political genius We have much to be thankful for in his political legacy to us. But when it came to the claims of ultimate authority, he spoke the language of the kings of the earth. The claims of biblical Christianity for Jefferson were but the chains of monkish ignorance and superstition that bind us. You see, rulers don't want to be ruled by God. They resent God's authority. They want to rule themselves. Now, this was certainly the experience of the Christians in the New Testament. For example, Acts 3 and Acts 4. Peter and John heal a lame man. They preach to the crowds. Thousands come to Jesus. The rulers feel threatened. They rage They take counsel together. They tell Peter and John to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, right? They assert their authority against the authority of Jesus. Now, in response, (laughs) Peter and John give these rulers a little puzzle to solve. Whether it is right in the sight of God to obey you rather than God, you must judge. (laughs) I like that. The book of Acts portrays this episode as yet another instance of the rebellion of the kings of the earth, right? It's just one more vain Psalm 2 plot of the rulers against the Lord's anointed. And Peter and John recognize this encounter with these rulers as exactly what had happened with Jesus. From Acts 4, Peter and John went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, you said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Right, so Peter and John and their friends too, they all realized, yep, Psalm 2 all over again. What Peter and John experienced, what Christ himself experienced in the crucifixion, what David himself had experienced, Psalm 2 describes the rebellion of the kings of the earth as one of the universal elements of politics in a fallen world. 
But please note verse 1, friends, and be comforted. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot? How? Yeah, in vain. The raging and plotting are useless. They're futile. They won't work. Right? They crucified Jesus, but he rose from the grave. They threatened the apostles, but their preaching brought salvation. They killed the saints, but the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Whatever any government on earth right now is doing to our brothers and sisters in Christ, well, we grieve and we pray and we act to bring relief and change. But it's no cause for despair. God himself will care for those who suffer and even die under persecution. And such raging would never unseat Jesus from his throne. About the worst raging of rulers that we could foresee here is Christians like losing access to public funds or losing exemptions in employment law or taxation. And even relatively minor political confrontation like that, to us it'd probably feel like a disaster, but it would still be no cause for despair. You see, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. A second element of the politics of our age is that Jesus, the Lord, has a plan for these rebellious kings, verses 4 through 9. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So first, the Lord will enthrone Jesus, and then Jesus will rule the nations. I'm not going to talk about verse 7. Verse 8, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. It's being fulfilled right now in the Great Commission. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Such an amazing passage. One of the things that stands out about it is the harsh tone of it all. Like God's plan for the kings is not a happy one. Right? There's this mocking laughter and derision. There's wrath and fury and terror. There's violence being smashed with an iron rod. This is a picture of the wrath of God. Like, it is supposed to be terrifying. I mean, not to us, but to these wicked kings of the earth. We often feel uncomfortable talking about the wrath of God. It feels so, so out of control, like so immature, like a temper tantrum, right? So unworthy of God. But God's wrath comes from his total opposition to everything that would threaten his people. God's wrath is his hatred of evil. And that is a beautiful thing. I mean, can you imagine if the Lord looked on injustice and said, meh? I mean, what if God saw the exploited and the excluded, the trafficked, and the abandoned, and the used, 
and the oppressed and simply maintained his serene composure. That would be unworthy of God. That would be unworthy of any of us. If the injustice of this world does not make your blood boil, you are morally broken. You see, it's easy for those who are comfortable in life to despise God's wrath. For the downtrodden, though, and for those who love righteousness, the wrath of God is the hope of vindication. The wrath of God means that the injustice of this world will be unbent. The kings of the earth will face a reckoning for their wickedness. And those who have suffered it in faith will find everything set right at last. And life will finally be on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Did you know that in the Bible, God is worshipped for his wrath? When Christ comes again to judge the quick and the dead, listen to what the saints will proclaim. Revelation 11. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. Did you catch that? The worship of the saints in Revelation 11, it's a nice recap of Psalm 2. The nations raged, but your wrath came. God's plan for the raging of the nations, for the rebellion of the kings of the earth, is wrath and destruction. A little later, Revelation 19, the anointed king comes riding on a white horse, clothed in a robe dipped in blood. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. There it is, the Lord's Messiah ruling the nations with the rod of iron foretold in Psalm 2. Now here's the thing. The two-edged sword and the rod of iron by which Jesus now rules is the word of God the proclamation of the gospel. When the kings of the earth rage against the citizens of the city of God, that's our challenge to preach, just like Peter and John. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds and take every thought captive to obey Christ. But when Christ comes again, his rule by sword and rod will take on its more overtly physical and political aspects. God has a plan for the rebellion of the kings of the earth. He began to execute it in the first coming of Jesus, and he will complete his plan when Jesus comes again. Now, what's really surprising, though, is God's vision for politics in the meantime And this is the third universal aspect of the politics of this age. Between the first and second comings of Jesus, what does God expect of a mortal prince? Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. To these rebellious kings of the earth, the Lord offers refuge. To despots and dictators, prime ministers and presidents, tyrants and warmongers, the Lord offers protection from wrath. This is stunning grace. You see, Psalm 2 summons the kings of the earth not to abdicate political power, but to submit that power to Christ. Right? God designed kingship. It was his idea. Not only does God set his king on Zion, he also appoints all the rulers of the earth. Romans 13. You see, the task of every king of the earth, God's vision for politics in this age, broadly in Psalm 2, is described as involving two things, verses 11 and 12. First, it is to serve the Lord. That means do what God designed kings to do. That is, pursue justice and peace. Uphold the rights of the oppressed. Care for the alien and the orphan and the widow. And then second, verse 12, kiss the son. That means show honor to the king of kings. It means recognize the ultimate authority of the son of God. Now for us though, for for those of us who do not wear the crown, what are the political implications for us of Psalm 2? Well, for those of you who are directly involved in governing, so city councils, uh, judicial system, the police, the military, and probably others that I'm forgetting, first of all, I praise God for every one of you. We all thank you for your service to our society. You bless us, and we are grateful. So for you who are directly involved in governing, what does it mean to kiss the sun, to honor Jesus in your political capacity? Well, as far as it depends on you, you should support the work of the churches. Make it easy for churches to do their work. Don't hinder the work of the church. Don't put political obstacles in the work of the churches. And then don't try to do the work of the church for it. In your official capacity, you attend to the business of justice and leave the gospel to the church. And then for all of us, whether or not we're professionally involved in governing, our task is to seek the welfare of the city where we live in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf because in its welfare, we will find our welfare. American society is still a long ways from freedom and justice for all. So we've got to seek to improve our government, yet without looking to it for salvation. We are to summon the kings of the earth to kiss the sun, knowing that their allegiance will rarely be more than partial. In love for our neighbors and to secure the freedom of the church to pursue its mission, we attempt to move the government toward true justice, all the while recognizing that government on its own can never get there. Only Jesus will bring true justice and lasting peace.
This is God's vision for politics between the first and the second coming of his anointed king, Jesus. So, Psalm 2, it's a Christian vision of politics. The kings of the earth resent the rule of the king of kings. But God has a plan to set things right. His anointed king will execute vengeance on injustice and bring lasting peace. Until then, the kings of the earth are offered the service of Christ as a better way. And where perhaps we suffer the raging of rulers, or maybe, like me, we just find our earthly cities crumbling, like Rome in Augustine's day, then let us be all the more grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Uh, I'd like to invite the servers forward now as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Of course, you know, friends, that it's not just uh, tyrants and warmongers that God invites to kiss the sun. To us, too, he offers refuge from wrath as we celebrate now. Let me close us in prayer. O Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for the ways in which the rulers of our country have served you and kissed your son. We do pray for our president and for all who are in high positions that they would maintain and extend justice so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. And Father, we thank you that our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And finally, Father, give us boldness, like you did Peter and John, to fight our king's battles with the word of the gospel, proclaiming even as we do here in the Lord's Supper, proclaiming his death until he comes again. For we ask this in the royal name of Jesus. Amen.